Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to a podcast Lovely. from Before the world. I'll read out the notices. Uh, we, there are two people here who come all the way from Australia. Please, Craig and Luke. Declare yourself. Can you identify Come yourself? on. Here we are. Great work. Look at that. All the way from Australia. A massive Just to expense. be here tonight. Just, just to be just here. So. Yeah, yeah. Just to be here tonight. In fact, the, one of the reasons we're getting on with it is they've got a flight to catch back to Australia. <laughs> Later this evening. Okay, uh, welcome back to the second part of the show. Um, there was a time, and it's not that long ago, when if you wanted to compile a list of, of striking books written by musicians of a popular kind, you get to Ian Hunter's Diary of a Rock Star. You might go Graham Parker's The Wrong Trousers. Do you remember that? <laughs> I've read all these. And after that, you'd be scratching your head, you know. It, it, but that's all changed. In the last ten years or so, when there's been, you know, an enormous number of uh, of, of, of books written by mu- musicians, generally autobiographical mu- books, from Keith Richard and Bob Dylan on down. And, and if you have to point out a weakness of a lot of these books, I, I always get the feeling that they're kind of written index first. You know what I mean? That yeah. they start with, can you get a load of names in here? Now, can you get an anecdote about? Absolutely every one of those names. And in well, precise chronological order. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, our guest here has written two highly acclaimed books, which you can't say that about at all, because they're, they're, about, they're about real life. And, uh, you know, his, his career as a distinguished member of Everything But The Girl and as a, as a solo artist and a producer and a, a guy running a record company sort of doesn't matter to the appeal of the book. And when, I was, when I was, we were actually uh, exchanging emails some while ago, when we first of all tried to set up this quite a while ago, I, I, I said, my wife's read your book and she doesn't even know who you are. <laughs> and, and I realised it's a sort of appalling thing to say. Because I managed to offend both my wife yeah. and our distinguished <laughs> guest. They're both here this evening. I hope they'll both forgive me. Why well, I've said that. Your wife walked out, actually. But up here, would you, <laughs> would you please welcome Ben Watt? Thank you. 
Now, we're going to be talking mainly about Romany and Tom this evening. Right. The book. Uh, and you're going to read us a bit. I just thought I'd read a couple of pages just to, just to set the tone. Um, I thought I'd read a bit uh, from the middle of the book. Uh, my parents are in their 70s at this point, and I've, I've tried to bring them up to London um, for one sort of last hurrah, and it's all gone a bit wrong. <laughs> and um, my mum's actually got very ill and has ended up in hospital. And my dad, who is basically a depressed alcoholic, um, is unable to sort of look after himself. And um, I've, we've had to put him into a local care home while my mum's in the hospital while we all decide what to do. Um, and this is a story of, of something that happened to my dad uh, while he was staying at the care home in North London. On a busy stretch of the Finchley Road, a few doors down from the secrets table and pole dancing club and the Thai Siam health and beauty bar stands a large boarded up sports bar called the 317. It was once a three-story Victorian pub called the Carney Arms and at weekends before it folded in the wake of an underage drinking scandal it doubled as a pre-club evening night spot with DJs playing funky sexy house music for buff lads on the pool and girls on their way up west. There were pool tables and big screen broadcasts, although during the week, most of the 16 satellite TV screens scattered around the venue were blank, and the upstairs and basement roped off, and the clientele corralled onto the ground floor in the mid-afternoons would change to companionless off-shift waiters on their way to the bookies and a few unaccompanied professional drinkers. It was here on a January lunchtime in 2003 that my dad, accompanied by a blind man and a chef, both from the same care home where he was staying, escaped for a celebratory drink to mark the new year. Now, the exit doors at the care home needed a manually entered key code before they would open onto a narrow brick driveway set back about 10 feet from the pavement. My dad didn't know the code, and I don't suppose the blind man did, but I'm sure the chef could do it in his sleep. <laughs> the section of the Finchley Road outside the door is a red route, double red lines, no stopping at any time. The noise can be quite startling when it's busy, four car lanes and two bus lanes of delivery lorries, skip hire trucks... Double-deckers, cars, coaches and white transits all jostling like jockeys in the final furlong for that extra yard of space. The 317 is about 200 yards away from the care home. It sounds near, but my dad, with his bad lungs, had been finding a short walk up and down the corridor was about enough most mornings. Not only that, but the bar is situated on the other side of the road across a box junction and a couple of potholes where the pelican crossings need smart decision-making once the pedestrian signal flashes green. By the time the three of them arrived, my dad was gulping for air. He made it through the front door, took a few tottering steps and then collapsed on the carpet. You might have thought that at this point the chef an employee at a care home, <laughs> after all, 
would have realised how reckless he had been and sprinted back for help. But no. Instead, he and a member of the bar staff propped my dad up against a fruit machine and gave him a glass of whiskey to revive him. (laughs) The effect on his brain, already dangerously short of oxygen, must have been nothing short of psychedelic. But more by luck than judgment, his heart didn't stop and they got him upright and seated on a bar stool. My dad, to his credit, composed himself and got his breath back. Everyone cracked a couple of jokes, and then, quite remarkably, they all got to the front door and somehow managed to walk back. (laughs) I suppose you must have some sympathy for my dad. As a persistent drinker, he must have found the enforced sobriety at the care home well, unless you count the evening sherry, hard to bear. The drop in blood alcohol levels must, at the very least, have brought on mild withdrawal symptoms and cravings. And with no emergency sugar substitutes readily to hand, the Coca-Cola, the bars of chocolate, the dried fruit, it must have all got too much, especially when a young, companionable chef was rolling back the years before him. Of course, when I found out, I confronted the care home and expressed my outrage in the strongest possible terms, and there were unstinting apologies. But apart from moving him somewhere else, which in itself would have been even more disruptive for him, I realised there was little else I could do. I had no legal charge over him. He was still a grown-up. The care home had adequate security measures in place on the front door, which was circumvented in extremely unusual circumstances. And I could no more control events than I could stop him going back to bed all day. Perhaps I should have insisted on the chef's dismissal, but that seemed overly hysterical. And anyway, I considered that was up to them. When it all blew over, I realised I actually secretly admired my dad for the sheer audacity of his escape. And it occurred to me that I had felt many things for him over the years. Admiration, respect, anger, disdain. But overarching all of it was a long, indecipherable allegiance. So that's the book, Romany and Tom, which, as I say, was, was your second um, autobiographical, autobiographical uh, writing. A memoir is the word you're memoir, looking for, David. That's, and it's a considerably easier word than the one <laughs> I use. Easy for you to say. Easy for you to say. Um, what, what, were the, what were the big challenges about... You know, you've been working in, in music. Where, <clears throat> you know, some people say that music is really good because it, 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 it kind of suits short attention spans. You know, you do things quickly. Whereas the thing that, one of the really impressive things about your writing is the amount of detail and the amount of observation. You, do you go about it in a very different way? Have you always taken notes all the way through? No. I, I don't really keep notebooks... Um, I've always had a very strong photographic memory. I mean, it's something that is a bit of an issue 
between me and Tracy in that I can often remember the colour of people's shoes, but I don't often remember anniversaries and uh-huh. things like that. I imagine but, that. Um, um, so I, I, I do have a strong observational visual eye. I've, al- I've always had that. But I think a lot of it is just there's a lot of hard work that goes on behind the scenes. You know, it's the, like the, the legs of the swan below the surface. And I just put in a, a lot of work into it. You, I began with my own memories for this book. But then I did a lot of detailed research and I realised that to, make, to bring it to life, you know, I had to really colour the page. Um, and I went back to places that I was writing about. I took photographs. So I, that I, particular place, you went back yeah, there? Yeah, several times, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, feel, several times? Yeah. I actually... The, the distance between the care home and the 317, I actually found on Google Maps. So, I mean, you know, you just use different techniques to, to sort of get all the detail together. Um, but it, it becomes quite forensic, and you start laying out all the facts in front of you. And then I find that once it's all there, that kind of infrastructure of detail, then I, I'm able to write quite, quite freely. Quite quickly. The yeah. book writes itself yeah. to a certain extent because you've got so much yeah. and I think to it, put in. Yeah, I, I saw an interview with, uh, with Richard Ford, the novelist, once, and he was saying that when he prepares his books, he has a, um, a folder with different uh, sections in it for the different characters. And whenever he thinks of a detail or an aspect of their life, he just slots it in, slots it in, slots it in, and gradually this folder gets bigger and bigger. And then when he comes to actually write the characters, there's so much background information that he's pre-prepared. And I, I, I really recognise that. I mean, I think it's something that I do as well. The, 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 the remark I made earlier about my wife not having heard of you, um, you know, you must have found with, your, with both these books that being read by loads of people who didn't know anything about your music... Yeah. Is that very gratifying? Well, of course. You know, I, 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 I hate that sort of slight pre-preparation sometimes people come at your work. And, and I love the idea that they come at it fresh. Because I certainly enjoy discovering people for the first time. Um, I'm always looking for something new. Um, I, I don't expect any airs and graces with what I've done. I like to, you know, impress people just with the work itself. So... It's actually, right. it's actually quite exciting, I think. Now, yeah. you've, you've, you've uh, sent us a bunch of pictures of yes. the, from your family album, I suppose, <laughs> uh, and, uh, which might help colour in for anybody sure. who hasn't read the book, and particularly people who have read the book will want to know more. Um, you uh, should actually give us a little sketch. Oh, there they are. I was going to say, we start with, uh, this is Roman. Your, your parents are so un- unimaginably glamorous uh, to me. <laughs> you know, um, so introduce them. Just to explain what, <clears throat> what, what they did for a living. It is absolutely astonishing, the right. world that you grew up in. Well, this, is, this picture is taken in the early 60s. Um, my dad grew up as a working-class boy in Glasgow uh, in the 20s and 30s. Um, his father worked in the local steelworks as a foreman. Um, his mother was a housewife. No one in his family was at all musical. But he discovered the music of Tommy Dorsey and and dreamed of being a jazz musician. And when he left school at 15, um, that's what he wanted to be. And to his parents' credit, they they got a piano for him at home that he was able to practice on. And he managed to blag a gig with the Jack Chapman Band, um, then went into the Air Force. um, And when he came out of the Air Force in the mid-40s, he went straight to London. It was that sort of social mobility that enabled people to move right after the war. 
And he had a series of jobs playing the piano in bands in the West End. And then in the mid-50s, um, he ran into his old friend from the Air Force, Brian Ricks, the actor-manager, who made a lot of money as an actor in the Whitehall farces, but was also a, a, a huge jazz fan. Um, and basically bankrolled my dad's first jazz orchestra demos, which is what my dad really wanted to do. Your godfather, too. Uh, and my godfather yeah. as well, he is now. And actually, Brian is now inserted into my middle name, which has never actually thrilled me, but... <laughs> <laughs> There's always a downside. Yeah. There, yeah. <laughs> uh, I was going to be Benjamin Thomas Watts after my dad, but Brian was just slipped in there at the last minute um, for, for other reasons which the book will also make clear. Um, so Brian bankrolled my dad's demos. The demos, uh, my dad put together this kind of crack jazz orchestra and impressed the BBC almost instantly with it and sort of out of nowhere became this um, huge success story, basically, in the late 50s on the London jazz scene. Um, he got his own show on the BBC. He had his own band playing at Quaglino's in the evenings. And um, it was all, all very glamorous. He was the youngest band leader in London in 1957. Um, my mother, conversely, had a very middle-class upbringing. Um, her father was a Methodist parson um, who went on to become uh, a very well-known radio broadcaster. He was like a sort of latter-day David Attenborough. He, he, he basically constructed the first nature programmes on the BBC. This is in the late 30s, where they'd artificially recreate rambles through the countryside and he would describe the animals that he would come across with these two schoolgirls who would travel with him. Um, it was actually all done in the studio, but the, the audience all thought it was actually recorded out in the field. And the two schoolgirls were actually two 40-year-old women putting their voices on, <laughs> uh, called Muriel and Doris. Um, and they, you know, they'd say things like, oh, look, oh, look, Romini, a little, a little hedgehog through the brambles. And all that. Actually, they're 40-year-old women. It's rather strange, isn't it? But there we go. In a tray of gravel. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing that brought my parents together was that they were both in loveless marriages. Um, my mother actually married the famous theatre critic Richard Findlater, um, who discovered John Osborne and wrote for Tribune and then went on to edit The Observer. Um, she was trying to become an actress herself. She acted with the what was to become the RSC, um, but then found herself pregnant first with one child and then with triplets um, in the early 50s which kind of put pay to her career and she also realised that she didn't love her husband very much uh, my dad was also stuck in a, in a marriage uh, which wasn't going anywhere and I think by their early 30s which is when they met um, they just felt deprived in many ways, certainly in terms of passion um, and I think we're at a very interesting point in social history at that point as well, where, you know, the idea of kind of marriage as something out of duty um, was being replaced by, you know, the sense from the late 50s and the late 60s of where self becomes important. There's actually, talking about your mother's theatrical career... And, yeah. Uh, the, the, the picture on the left taken by the, the famous Angus McBean. yes. The legendary theatrical photographer. Yes. I think we say McBain, don't we? Do we? Well... Yes. I stand corrected. <laughs> Dave, come on. Memoir, hey, uh, McBain. No, no, no. <laughs> took, the, took the picture on the cover of the first Beatles. Yeah. Though. Terrific. So what was uh, she doing there? Well, this is my mum 
as in fact, what I was just talking about, her first big break was when she acted with a theatre company that just preceded the RSC at the Memorial Theatre in, in Stratford. Um, and she was in her mid-twenties looking for a lucky break and she got basically walk-on parts um, in a 66-strong company with only six women um, and found herself acting alongside uh, Peggy Ashcroft and John Gielgud, um, directed by... Anthony Hopkins. Well, she dances with, doesn't she? She dances the book, with Gilgood, Right up to the yeah. very end, she said, I danced with yeah. Sir John. Yeah, still <laughs> one of her strong memories, even now, with dementia. Even now, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Um, and this was taken in 1950 while she was there at Stratford. Um, and then she went on to work yeah, for... Change of career. Yes, but as a journalist. Well, this, this is the interesting thing. Uh, my dad's career, which we can talk about later, as, as we know, went into decline as sort of pop-kicked jazz into the long grass. And whilst he was unable to sort of recover himself in some way, my mum did manage to reinvent herself as a showbiz writer and became very successful as a a feature writer, writing for She Magazine and Cosmopolitan uh, from the early 60s onwards. And by the late 60s, she was becoming really uh, given quite glamorous assignments. Here she is with Goldie Hawn and George Hamilton IV, in Hollywood. This is, I think, in the very late 60s. And it was around this time that she managed to secure um, exclusives with Burton and Taylor. Um, and they basically paid for my, uh, my upbringing. <laughs> <laughs> and also gives, at one point, gives Elizabeth Taylor the scarf. Is it your, gran- your great-grandmother's scarf? Yeah. Which yeah. you then... What happened? That you saw it in a, in a the magazine. It was only a picture of... Well, she had already struck up a relationship with Richard Burton. She'd interviewed him a couple of times. And she always played up the kind of wild Welsh gypsy. Her, her mother had Welsh heritage. And, of course, Burton was Welsh. So whenever she went to interview him, she would dress up in these quite sort of outrageous, wild... Gypsy. Gypsy yeah. costumes. <laughs> yeah. like, like you do, you know. Yeah. And... Um, <laughs> And so when she went out to interview him in Mexico in 1970, she took her wild Welsh uh, gypsy outfit with her and um, (laughs) (laughs) pre-prepared... Outfit. She basically... She she laid the ground. Uh, She was quite smart. She took out this um, gypsy scarf that had belonged to my great-grandmother. And sure enough, Liz Taylor, at one point during the interview, made a big fuss about tracing her... Heritage and perhaps her, she was very dark skinned, you know, dark hair. Did she have gypsy background? And uh, my mother at the end presented her with this gypsy scarf as a, you know, present. Very clever. I know, really, brilliant. All of it. Brilliant. Yeah. I hope, have you have you got you got you got something for me? I hope. Sorry, you've got something for me. You <laughs> <laughs> see, she goes away on these on these trips to interview fantastically famous people. Was she a bit starstruck? I think, yes. I mean, I think she's always loved the, the glamorous side of, of um, showbiz. But, you know, she, she sees it from the inside because she, she was an actress herself. But, um, no, she, she always loved it. And it was the same when me and Tracy were, were, were travelling and touring a lot with, with the band. She would always love the whole backstage yes, yes, yes. machinations and she would always insist on coming to the gig through the stage door. She wouldn't, 
she, yeah, she was bothered. Waving to imaginary <laughs> yeah. people. Yeah. <laughs> you would. You do yeah. well, would you? <laughs> and then she would go and take her seat out in the stalls and watch festooned in everything but the girl badges. And, <laughs> oh, wonderful. Yeah. Um, and then would reappear afterwards in the dressing room, you know, and with her camera and would take endless photographs of whoever was there for posterity. And sell them to She magazine. Yeah. <laughs> and she would annotate them all in her scrapbooks. Say, so there's photos of me and Tracy backstage with little post-it notes... Oh, lovely. ..pointing to someone's roadie and, <laughs> you know, the drummer's grandma. Right, or yeah. she knew who they yeah, were. Yeah, she'd worked them all so out. So th- those are pictures of your mother, and uh, I think what we have next is... this is Ah, there we go, yeah. You described that very picture father of the room, yes. in, uh, that's him there. That's yeah. him there. Yeah. So where's that taken? And where? That, that's Quaglino's, uh, which is his first uh, big gig in London, 1957. Um, he was actually booked just to be the pianist in the incoming quintet that was taking over from the outgoing band. And you must realise Quaglino's was the place to be uh, in terms of kind of high society and sort of glamorous cocktail living. Uh, in, in, when this is the post-war years, it's still full of austerity. Um, so, you know, it was, a, it was a real golden ticket, this place. And my dad was asked to be the pianist in the band, but with sheer force of character and charisma, he sort of convinced the management that what they needed was, as he called it, the new music. And they said, well, well how do we get this new music? And he said, well, I'm the person <laughs> to give it to you. And basically had the whole quintet renamed the Tommy Watt Quintet and talked Quaglinos into letting him lead the band. And there he is with his five-piece band. And this is probably some MP or right, right. lord yes. or something, you know. Um, I don't know. I'd love, I've always wanted to know who that is. If anyone ever finds out who that photo is, <laughs> tell me. Um, but, but it's so it's, it's it's kind of very fascinating that he's this absolutely at the top of his game. Here we are. In fact, there's a, there's a poster here, mm. uh, and and obviously the Beatles arrive and pop music comes in, rock and roll, and his position is threatened by that. Yeah. But he will not adapt. Will no. he? He refuses. I mean, he's offered extraordinary jobs, wasn't he? Wasn't he offered a job, to, some arrangement job with the Beatles? Yeah. I mean, what, it's incredible. So go on, what, what happened? He was offered. Well, he was. He, he was signed by George Martin, who just obviously prior to the Beatles was doing jazz and all sorts of music on Parlophone. And then uh, George came up to my dad at one point and said, I've just discovered these four lads from Liverpool who I think are going to go somewhere. Would you like to do the arrangements? The arrangements. Uh, yeah, and my dad had a listen and said, well, it's just not for me. Rubbish, you know, right. Yeah. Never catch on. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's probably I think he, very wise. Anthony. I think the trouble is, I think my dad sensed it would catch on, but uh, he resisted and felt that somehow, if there was enough of a, a resistance movement, <laughs> <laughs> that somehow they could, in a canute-like kind of way, hold it back. Hold it back. It's brilliant. He couldn't yeah. have done this all. No. It's extraordinary. This this uh, old post that you send me. I mean, this is like. It's like the early 80s at the Wag Club, isn't it? It is, it, very it, much. Blue yeah. Rondo a la Turk, yeah. Yeah, yeah, really. And look, look at the venue here. The National Union of Tailors, Tailors and, and Garment, Garment Workers. Workers. Long gone. Yeah. yeah. It's around the corner from here. Charles Square. So was, it, was he bitter about that change that took place? Um, I think he was, yes. Um, secretly. Although he tried, to never, he tried to never let on too much. He always kept his powder dry and... Um, you know, I think he, I think he accepted that it, it was there. Um, he was always very jealous of the kind of arrangers 
who managed to survive through it. People like Quincy Jones, uh, Pat Williams, um, a lot of the big American arrangers who managed to somehow, you know, still maintain their dignity and, and, and strength even through the jazz years. But for British jazz, it was very different. Um, it's really sad that at one point he finished up playing piano in the pit at the Bournemouth Winter Garden. Yeah. So I can't remember what he's not even supporting the main act, is he? I no. Don't who is he? He's waiting for Bruce Forsyth comes on. Well, this point. was, yeah, in, in 1970, he had one last great roll of the dice when the Dorchester came to him. That's it, yeah. And said, you know, we, we want to revive the big band sound and we want you to lead the band. And my dad was given the opportunity to put together a nine-piece orchestra and write all the arrangements. And I write about this really vividly in the book because it's one of my strongest, yeah, earliest childhood memories um, with coming home from school. And my dad, every day, would be writing these arrangements, writing these arrangements, and I'd hear the piano in the house. And then, of course, the actual... Um, the residency starts at the Dorchester, and it's an absolute disaster. Um, and it's just little old ladies up from Eastbourne coming up for a tea dance to here's some Glenn Miller, you know, and it's... The whole thing fell apart within about uh, six to eight weeks, and my dad was heartbroken. Um, and you're right, immediately after that, um, he was just accepting work that was thrown at him, and he, he ended up playing the piano in the, in the pit orchestra at the Bournemouth Winter Garden, playing piano for the Beverly Sisters, That's and, it, yeah. you know, comic routines by Hope and Keen. And remember, anyone remember Hope and Keen? Yes. Very early 70s. Yeah. You know, double act. Um, there was one great moment he actually had when he, he was actually given the job as MD for Tommy Cooper um, in, in Scarborough, which he does look back on as one of the funniest... Well, he did look back on one of the funniest three months of his life. And I went up to see him when he was up there. And even I, at that age, and I can only have been about seven, found the whole thing absolutely marvellous and hilarious and thought Tommy Cooper was fantastic. And the whole... The whole band were always just killing themselves every night it was it was great to watch but did you also you know growing up when your father was going through these disappointments did you also pick up something that most non-musicians growing up wouldn't pick up the, the kind of the toughness and the humiliation that that can be involved in the musicians lost you know what i mean that things can go badly wrong and people come home miserable because nobody's turned up and all that kind of thing did you absorb any of that kind of stuff i think probably i did and I, I, I certainly, I realised that humility was, was an important, you know, card to play when it, when it comes to music and, and not to expect too much. Um, and that, you know, the tables can turn just as soon as they, they turn in your favour, they can turn the other way. Right. Um, perhaps I didn't articulate it like that when I was 18, but it was probably in the back of my mind because I'd certainly seen it with my dad, yeah. But you were sort of rooted in a... Oh, oh sorry, we're going on. So, no, go yeah, on, yeah. yeah. No, on. I was going to say you were just <laughs> rooted in a kind of showbiz uh, a kind of world. As a moment where your mother sort of comes back with all these autographs, these people that she's uh, interviewed, you know, Noel Edmonds. Yeah, Noel like Edmonds, and It's really yeah. nice that you collect these autographs. Yeah, you know. James Galway. James Galway. <laughs> the man with the golden flute. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Wings. Who else at school's got one of those? Yes. <laughs> That's right. Because you were living... Where were you living at the, I don't know, at the time of these pictures? Is this Barnes? This is Barnes in south-west London. See, yes. it's quite, it's quite an idyllic existence, it appears yes. to be. And you were living in a, in a road with loads of quite well-placed yeah. people. Well, it was... It was we, we only had... We lived in the flat. At the, we had the top two floors. Uh, we're in the garden here, but actually 
the brick wall that you can see there is actually the flat to my grandmother who lived on the ground floor. Uh, and we had the top two floors, the flat above. Uh, and, but in the summer, we'd come down and use the garden. Um, and that's my mum actually writing some feature there. Um, that's all. She's got her work with her. Um, and this is the football kit from one of my older brothers after England won the World Cup. Ironic and I'm still wearing it about three years later. <laughs> <laughs> in 1969. Keep the dream alive. Yeah. <laughs> this ball actually went out of shape because it was left near the incinerator in the garden. And it never rolled straight on the lawn. But it was the only one I was allowed to play with. Um, <laughs> so what was life like in Barnes at that time growing up? Well, it was, you know, it was... Um, it was a very media what you'd call a media road now. Um, and looking back, I mean, the people who, who, who I grew up alongside, it was an extraordinary collection of people. Everyone in the road, looking back, seemed to be somebody. Um, on my right-hand side was John Kentish, who was an opera singer at Sadler's Wells. On the right was Basil Davidson, who was a famous African historian. Then there was the, one of the editors at the... Daily Telegraph, then there was the man who launched London Weekend Television, then there was the family of Augustus John, um, the post-impressionist painter um, whose son was Casper John, who was first sea lord at the Admiralty, um, and all these people lived in the road, and it was um, fairly bohemian and kind of, you know... (laughs) (laughs) How do your parents feel about living amongst those people? Well, I I think my dad always had a very strong kind of working-class, slight socialist chip on his shoulder about it all. Um, And certainly he had no time for the editor of the Daily Telegraph, for example. Um, And he was always slightly, you know... He he, he slightly looked down on it all. He thought it was all a little bit bit poncy, really. And he preferred to spend his time in the public bar at the bull's head with plumbers and drummers and... Right, right, You know, because right. that was more the kind of person he was. So you, but you, you've, so you've got half-brothers and, and so forth, but you were brought up as an only child there? Effectively, yeah. I mean, my, the, my half-brothers and sisters from my mum's first marriage to Richard Findlater, um, we all lived together, so I, I, I grew up with them. Um, but then when my memories start, which is where I'm about seven or eight... They're already in their late teens and about to leave home and go to university and stuff. So certainly my teenage years were very much... As Which is presumably why there's such an incredibly high level of observation of your parents. Because mm. had you had brothers and sisters, you would probably have ignored your parents and, and played <laughs> with them, I don't know. But it's, just, it's so extraordinary how much you've noticed what they did and remembered. Yeah. And I, I, was, I think I was encouraged to be an adult quite early as well. Um, I, the, the, I don't remember my childhood being particularly being particularly indulged. I, f- I was well-loved. I'm not looking back saying it was tough in that sense, emotionally tough, but it was quite robust. You know, I was expected to laugh at my dad's jokes quite early on. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same in my family, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so then you go on, you leave and you go to university and so forth and yeah. you've made a record on your own and you, you meet Tracy who's made records with... A group and mm. so forth, and you, you get together and you, you, know, you have success, more success than your, your father yeah. ever had in the music business. How do your parents feel about your success? Well, uh, they both approached it very differently. I mean, my mum, as I talked about coming to the gig, she loved all of it. She was just thrilled. You know, it was showbiz. 
you know, it was a different kind of showbiz, but let's face it, it was still showbiz. Yeah. Um, and she clipped out all of the reviews and the cuttings and kept scrapbooks and um, would always ask me how the notices were for our albums, you know. <laughs> That's notices, great. Yes. The, the New Musical Express. Yes, That's the great. notices and the Melody Maker. <laughs> yeah. Rave notices. Yes. Um, <laughs> and my dad was always much more conflicted. And I think it was because, you know, on the one hand, he was very pleased that I'd made a career as a musician. I mean, that was a great plus point in his eyes. Um, but, of course, I was making a success in the very area of music that he'd rejected and that had kicked him out of the way. Um, so it was difficult for him. And I think, you know, I think what, one of the big problems lies in the difference between jazz and pop, if you like. I mean, jazz is very much about self-expression allied with technique. And pop is very much about self-expression allied with lack of technique. Right. Or <laughs> yeah. concept, let's say. Yeah, yeah. You know, where concept is as important mm. as, as anything else. And I think, yeah. looking back, he very much liked our records where technique was more married with self-expression. So he loved the first record, Eden, where I'd written all these horn arrangements. And he loved the album we made in L.A. in the late 80s with Michael Brecker and Stan Getz. But the more conceptual records, like we're going into Abbey Road, Dad, to record an album with an orchestra, and it's going to sound like Patsy Cline meets Dusty Springfield. He just went, why? You know, he just didn't quite understand what why we What did they think about the self-expression, what the, th- the things you wrote about, and the lyrics? Because that's well, something I, you're always very self-conscious about in the presence of your parents. Yeah, I, my mum pi- picked up on the lyrics much quicker than my dad, and she realised that that was really what the band was about. It was as much about what we were, you know, singing as what we were playing. Uh, it took my dad a lot longer to catch on. Um, I think it was about three or four albums in before he realised that there were actually something going on in the lyrics. And then uh, I gave him the song that I wrote about him, which was The Night I Heard Caruso Sing. And I said to him, Dad, this is about the trip we made up to Scotland, and I've written it for you. And that was when the penny dropped with him, and he realised that, ah, there's more to this than meets the eye. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. So here you are with your... um, With... Mum and Dad, in what what years are we talking about there? So this is... Um, is that above you there on the, on the left? Here? Yes, above... Uh, so this is my mum. Sorry, oh, I thought you were above there. No, yes. this is my mum. Yeah. And my dad, and that's my half-sister Jenny. That's it, yeah. yeah. So this is um, 1993, and um, I describe this photo in some detail in the book. Um, one of my favourite pictures, actually. And this is only about a year uh, since I came out of hospital, uh, having uh, got through um, my battle with Jörg-Strauss syndrome at the Westminster Hospital. And this is about a year later. um, And my dad, um, who's been battling with depression and drinking, has actually been on the wagon after a, a, a mini stroke that he suffered while driving his car. And um, they all came up to visit me and Tracy in London. And we had some, I think it was a Sunday lunch we had together. And we went for a walk. And this is taken on Hampstead Heath. Um, It's October. And the trees are turning. And um, 
Tracy, who's a self-confessed technophobe, uh, took the photograph, which I, I, I really love. Because it's a very happy picture. Well, it is. And um, I, 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 as I say in the book, I mean, I, I love my dad in that in many ways. And I realise that a lot of the photos I like best of my dad are when he's sober in them. Um, and he is there. I think my mum looks like a resistance fighter as well. <laughs> right, right, right. I, I, I kind of picture her as that in her later years as well. And that's uh, my lovely sister, half-sister Jenny, who, who died so sadly a couple of years ago. So did, did you... Was drinking always... A, it was a big issue, was it, with them as you were growing up? Well, I think it was, it was, it was part of that generation, you know, and I think it was... You know, it was a very social thing. Um, you know, hours of the day were marked by a drink. And how could you be a jazz musician in yeah. Soho and not drink? And, you know, it was very much a part of his culture. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, the thing that acts as a loosener, if you like, you know, both in society and in your work, starts to become something you rely on as you get older. And they couldn't particularly my dad, couldn't shake off the drinking. And it became allied to his depression, and the two started to weld together. And this was the, you know, the, great, the great issue going forward. He, he became more and more insular, and more and more isolated, um, stayed at home, became quite paranoid. Um, and my mother, God bless her, you know, battled away for years trying to keep it all going and... Uh, keep a life for herself going. She kept writing until her late 60s. Um, I mean, she was still doing travel pieces for The Observer and The Guardian and um, into her late 60s. Um, but towards the end, um, ended up with that slight thing, if you can't beat them, join them. And ended up drinking a bit like my dad uh, into her 70s, uh, which is when I sort of started to take well, try to take control of them. Um, and that's really where the book begins, as they sort of slightly lose control of themselves. I love the way the time so it, But it is, it is the kind of classic narrative that people jokingly say, you know, that you start off as, you know, you have to look after your parents like you used to look after your children. Mm. Was, was it like that? Of course. Well, I didn't... I, 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 that's the last thing I thought it would be like, mm. stupidly. I thought I could control it. And I thought that by bringing them up to London you know, relieving them of this sort of self... this uh, sense of uh, self-independence, self-determination. I could control them in some way. It was, you know, it was foolish. And they were basically like two truculent children. Um, and I also realised that it was a step too far. You know, particularly for my dad, I'd taken them out of a comfort zone. They'd been in Oxford where they'd been living for 12 years. Suddenly threw them into a whole brand-new environment, a new flat... You know, my mum had to get used to new shops and all this kind of stuff and a new GP and, you know, all the basics I didn't really pay enough attention to. And um, it it threw them, really. And I think um, their decline was actually much quicker than I thought it... Than, it thought, than I thought it would be. Was your going back into the, the past an attempt to kind of get a greater understanding of who they were? Because I love the way that the, the book goes further and further back into your ancestry. At one point you get to, I think, your great-great-grandfather mm. 
who I think more than one of his children die of smallpox, and this was in one of the mid-19th century. Mm. It was how early 19th century. You know? I mean, it, 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 did you, when you started to write the book, did you set out to go back that far, or did that just develop through the course of exploring who your parents were? I think it, 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 it came as I tried to flesh out their characters more, um, and particularly the contrasting backgrounds. Um, and my, my mother's Romany background and gypsy background was, I think, quite important to her character. Um, and that's why I went back into that. But my great-great-uncle was uh, Gypsy Smith, who was a famous evangelical preacher. He was like kind of latter-day Billy Graham. Um, and this is in the 20s where, you know, evangelising Methodism was at its peak and he was an incredibly charismatic live performer, basically. Um, I wonder where I get it from. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I mean, I, I mean, I mean the live performer bit, not the charismatic. Yeah, bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, he he would talk for hours to tens of thousands of people in these great tabernacles. And at one point, he talked to forty thousand people in Times Square in New York. Um, Incredible. So yeah, that was really to flesh out their their characters but um what was the other really touching mm. thing that you say very, very early on about how the modern world is so uh documented you know everything is just being recorded constantly there's just text and there's emails and there's, there's instagrams you know and you're going back and looking at a world where very very little is remains very touching when you find these these little analog letters you mm. know from your mother mm. uh, about her relationship with her father, which you open up mm. and feel you're picking the lock into some kind mm. of a safe that you shouldn't yeah. even be looking into. And it's true that, that, that you know, in a, in a sort of digital 21st century, those things are really precious and need to be recorded. Yeah. And that's really one of the reasons you went back and did all that research. Yes, and, you know, it, it, as I said before, it does become... It becomes, like, very important forensic evidence because you have yeah. so little of it. So certainly the, uh, the collection of letters that my mother kept... You know, I poured over for hours, rereading and reading, you know, scraping them for all the detail in a lot of cases. And what was amazing was that she kept, um, particularly through the years of her affair with my dad, um, all the letters from her first husband, Ken, which are just as dramatic and beautiful and written in a completely different tone to that of my parents. And I realised I was able to like weave these other characters' stories in and really make it about, you know... Did they know that a, you were a whole cast of characters? Well, no. I mean, my dad had died. He died in, um, in 2006, which is really what got me started on right, the whole idea of it. writing the book. Um, and then by the time I actually embarked on it in seriousness, which was um, 2012... Uh, my mum, by that stage, was suffering, you know, advanced stages of dementia. So, I mean, I go and see her still regularly, and um, she has moments of lucidity. And uh, I've showed her the copy of the book. I was going to say, have you Yeah, no, I've said, you know, your mum, I go, look, you know, here you are, look, this is you in Mexico, 1970. And uh, this book, it's all about you. And then I showed her the reviews from some of the papers. And she said, in the papers, darling... That's where I like to be. <laughs> <laughs> Any good notices? <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
was perfect. Well, you read your book, which is less dramatic <clears throat> than this, but your mother was chewing <clears throat> off about it. Oh, she right, the sorry, care yes, at a, at a tangent. My mother's also at an old folks' home, and, and I think you have to develop, I don't know if anybody else is, because a mother of mine, mother's about to be 97, actually, um, oh. and... Uh, uh, it, it's very touching in a way. You have to develop a kind of humour about it because it's very yeah. sad when they become so confused. But on a happier note, I ring up my mother before I go and see her to remind her I'm coming to see her and then I ring up <clears> the next <throat> morning to say I'm just setting off. And when I get there 45 minutes later, thrilled, surprised. You know? <laughs> yes. And it's really sweet. <laughs> yeah. Hello, darling. What do you think? i just come to see you. Yeah. Yes. But anyway, the embarrassing thing is, and I, I hope your mother isn't the same, she leaves a copy of my book uh, literally on the table. Just, oh, that old thing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> No, not in the papers yet. No, sorry. <laughs> anyway, now this is a picture, obviously taken later. When, yeah. when are we talking about there? So this is, I think, around uh, two thousand and four. Um, so I've brought them up to London. It's all gone a bit wrong, and they tried a few months in the the two of them in the care home in London that I, I read about in the book earlier on, and. It was too expensive and n- not the place we wanted them to be in in, in, in a few other different ways. And Roly, who is my half-brother, uh, the chap in the middle there, um, he suggested, why don't they come down to this place near where I live, which is near Bristol, uh, north of Bristol, which um, had some very good reports. And so this is just after we've moved them into the Bristol care home in 2004. So this is a couple of years before my dad died. Um, and that's the room that... Um, look, you can even see an Everything But The Girl Eden poster... Oh, <laughs> wonderful. ..on the wall behind Fantastic. them. Which my mother would have insisted putting up... Yes. Even, ..even when she was at that age, so... So how do, you, how do you feel about it all now when you look back? I mean, you know, most people... Do you feel you did everything you could and...? I do, and... Um, perhaps I was naive in some ways, thinking that I could, you know, exert some control over them when they came up to London. But at the same time, they were in such desperate straits in Oxford. My mum was really losing the battle. Um, it was a, a terrible house to, to live in physically as well. There were too many stairs. My dad was very immobile. Apart from his depression, he also was suffering from, well, for want of a better word, um, emphysema, it was a COAD obstructive pulmonary disease um, so coupled with his drinking <laughs> and his depression and this appalling bronchitis he was very housebound and um, something had to be done um, but you know I, I feel that I, I, I did everything I could and you know Roly has, has been marvellous as well in, in these later years particularly with my mum um, he visits her very regularly because he's nearby. So, you know, we still put the hours in. And, um... so, but it strikes me reading, reading your book that, that, that actually we're the first generation, uh, and they are actually at the business end of this, to really experience this idea of, of, of old age. You know, I mean, I, people didn't used to live this no. long. I mean, I, 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 my, my, the last of my grandparents died when I was three. Mm. You know, they were in their late 60s. Nobody got in a great state about it. That was mm. considered to be a really good innings, you know. Yeah. So we are, you and, and everybody, all of us, are learning huge amounts about a whole world we don't know much yeah. about, which is people having lives... Well, I mean, up to the hundred, you know. I, I think, you know, in, in years gone by, um, you know, people of the age of my parents by this stage would have got pneumonia um, or would have had a fall, mm-hmm. you know, which is yeah. usually the one that leads... 
to hospitalization. But the miracle of modern medicine is yes. often, you know. Yes, and, you know, my mother now lives in the newly built wing of this care home in Bristol. Um, it's, it's absolutely bulletproof, you know. Nothing's going to kill her in it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and... <laughs> And, you know, it's marvellous in some ways that she's still alive, but at the same time, I'm very aware that she sort of wishes that it would end now, you know? She's, you know, she's outlived my dad by eight years, she's got dementia, you know, she's aware that her life is And very sweetly, she thinks that your dad is one of the, on the board of directors of the care home. That that was a period she went through, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Which is rather touching, Um, really. Nice uh, to think of him in such a <clears throat> controlling, responsible position. Yeah. <laughs> some, of, some of the things he's done in his life. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, her dementia's taken various forms over the years, some of it not quite as, as humorous. I mean, at, at one stage, just after my dad died, it was, it was difficult because she kept... At first, she saw him returning uh, through the wall of her room. Uh, and I used to say to her, how do you see him, Mum? And she said he was always. He, she said she, he was always so well dressed, and he was always dressed in the clothes that he was wearing when they first had their affair, as this '60s band leader. Oh. Um, and that was that was the point in the book where I realised I could actually use that as a kind of um, a method of telling the story of their affair, as she witnesses this ghost, you know, yeah. of her husband come back dressed like that. But then very quickly, it all it all got. Um, it all got difficult because she suffers from this form of uh, dementia which has these quite vivid hallucinations and it wasn't long before he was a skeleton under the bed and all this kind of stuff and it was very complex. Um, but yes, that, that, the period that you talk about, uh, she was actually envisaging him as on the board. At the, <laughs> yeah, uh, I think that's... That's quite a compliment. The the book's book's obviously had great acclaim. It's nominated for the Samuel Johnson Prize for Non-Fiction. Yes, it is, yeah. When when do you get to know whether you've won that? Um, Well, I I think the short... It's on the long list, and then the short list, I think, is October. Right, if it's any justice, it's going to be on the short list. I think the, the, the final... Award is November. Right. Mm. Yeah, you, you had lots of, presumably, lots of good feedback. You must have had lots of good feedback from people who's similarly placed with their own parents. Is that true? I think a lot of people have uh, have written to me and and said that they've read the book and it's it's made them reassess their relationship with their parents and particularly the life. Well, two things: their life with their parents now. What's you know the years that are left to them with their parents, but also the life of their parents before they were born um, and using that as a method to understand their parents more now, um, which is very much, you know, the idea I had to kick the book off, this idea that, you know, we only tend to see the second half of our parents' lives, which is the downhill part um, and the golden years of our parents' lives. We actually have to go back and piece together and when we look into it, we realise that that was very much the thing that defined them. There were moments in there which which made them up. And actually, the very first line of the book, the preface, that line about the golden years, I actually put on Twitter um, back in early... I suppose it was late 2011, early 2012. I virtually put the whole line of the book on Twitter because it struck me as an idea. And I got such a response 
I thought, this is, this is really good, you know, and it yes. became the driver for the beginning of the book. Wonderful piece of instant market research. Yeah, it was, fantastic. instant market research. Yeah. yeah. Now, so there's the book, and, uh, and, and it's an extraordinary piece of work, Ben. It really is. Thank it's you. Absolutely yeah. terrific. It's fantastic. Uh, you're, you're now back to your musical career. Yes. Uh, you're about to go on tour, is that right? Yes. Back out on tour, yes. Right, right. Because you, uh, you, you laid off it a long time. Uh, yes, 31 years, yeah. Right. So was it the, the itch that, you know, brought you back? We were talking about this with Zoe earlier, with Fleetwood yeah. Mac, that they can't give up, you know? Was it, did you feel that pull of playing music? Well, I, I, there's two things I'd say. I mean, obviously everything but the girl went on this kind of permanent hiatus in about 2000. Tracy decided she wanted to, you know bring up family and then when she returned she went into a sort of solo career and I felt I'd actually kept my performing years going in many ways because although I've not been visible you're DJing yeah in yeah. the rock and pop yeah. world you know very much on the underground dance scene um I was very visible you know and was traveling a lot as a DJ playing clubs and festivals um so that side of it um never really died in me I've always been a bit of a bit of a show off you know I like getting up on a stage and performing exactly Um, and my dad in some ways I think Um, and I love that moment of interaction you know when the lights go down and you have to make something common happen between the two of you the audience and the person on stage that's I get a real thrill from that but what I realized about two or three years ago was that I'd hit a bit of a wall with the DJing and particularly running the label, which was exhausting. And that somehow my own creativity was not being satisfied and I wanted to get back to words, um, which is why I I started to write the book. And then that led to songs and I realised that I wanted to play the guitar again and and write. Um, So I kind of hung up my headphones, as they say. Because I was following and, um, you on Twitter and yeah. I think you were starting to go to guitar shops, weren't you? Yeah, that's and a I bad sign, isn't it? sense yeah. your excitement. Mm. <laughs> that you, you felt you were allowed to buy a new guitar. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. it was about to be yeah. a professional undertaking again. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, and then I ran into Bernard Butler, which was another turning point. Um, uh, I actually went to a very fortuitous uh, party in the back garden of... The writer Pete Perfides, you know Pete, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, who lives in Crouch End, who is throwing a summer party, and um, two things happened that night. One, Pete, who was doing the barbecue, um, said to me casually over a kebab, um, "Have you ever thought of going back and playing guitar like you did when you wrote Walter and John, which was some." A tra- quite an obscure track on my first 12-inch EP back in the early 80s. And I went, no, not really. And he said, well, I think there's a few people who'd really like to hear you play guitar like that again. <laughs> and I walked away with my kebab, thinking, wow, Pete Perfides still remembers Summer into Winter. And it, it actually meant, meant quite a lot to me, because yeah. I respect Pete's opinion. And then I was introduced at the barbecue to Bernard Butler for the first time, who was a neighbour of Pete's down the road in Crouch This is a huge set piece arranged by Perfides. Probably, yes. <laughs> yes. yes. He probably had all sorts of people. You're there. not yeah. Johnny Marr. Yeah. Right. You're getting no barbecue sauce until you promise to get <laughs> yeah. back on the road. That's right. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, and Bernard was there, and um, we started... It was very awkward. We sort of knew of each other and um, never met before. And we talked a bit. But in retrospect, I can look back and realise that it was, it was quite an important moment for both of us. Um, I was obviously getting this feeling that I wanted to get back to music in some way, uh, having been a DJ for 10 years. And Bernard had been in the studio for 10 years as a producer, um, as a you know, songwriter, playing guitar, but only on record. And I think he was feeling the urge to get back out in venues again and play live. And it was at that moment that we met. Um, and we, had a, we, I, we got together a, a couple of weeks after. I invited him over to my place to just play. And it was a disaster. Um, yeah, no, we were really awkward with each other. We didn't know what to play. We were tiptoeing around each other. Um, Bernard had broken his leg playing football and arrived with it in a cast. And he was a bit grumpy. And um, I thought, this isn't going to go anywhere. But I, in my heart, I felt that it was, there was something there. And then a year later, I'd started to write the songs for Hendra. And I rang him up again and said, look, I've now got this idea. Um... I've written all these folky, open-tuned, quite impressionistic things. And I want this darker voice. I want this kind of overdriven Mick Ronson, kind of Richard Thompson sound on the record. And I, you're the man to do it, Bernard. And I didn't actually... I, actually, that's wrong. I didn't actually say that to him, but that was in my mind. And I went round to see him. And I said, what sort of thing would you play over these songs? And he said... He literally picked up a guitar while one of the demos was playing and played that kind of thing that he plays on the record, which is exactly what I oh, wanted. Perfect. And I just went, yeah. Bernard, you know. You got the job. And we well, got married there and <laughs> yeah, there. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it's, been, it's been a very happy, uh, very happy comeback because this, this, this won the Difficult Second Album Award yes. recently. It did, yes. Do you get a prize with that? Do you who who gives this difficult second album award? It was the AIM Awards, um, right. Association of Independent, oh, yeah, Music, yeah, Independent Music, yeah. which is in their fourth year now. I mean, it's yeah. a very, very good um, sort of industry body, and they've been very invisible, doing very good work for the independent sector for many years, and they've now set up an awards to make themselves a bit more visible. Um, and this was their fourth year, and they've got a category which is best difficult second album to reward brilliant idea. so you've got a you've got a statuette have you or something i have a little robot yes. okay <laughs> well let's hope that come uh, you know next year whenever it is november that you have a samuel johnson award to go with that because it's richly deserved that's all we got time for i faithfully promise people they'll be home early <laughs> Would you ben please? will be signing this book ben outside. will be signing his book out there yes, for anybody do like please a, a buy a copy. copy it is fantastic please thank ben watt thank you Thank you. Thank you very much. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.